You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Thursday, the 21st of September. And this week, we're going to give you advice on how and where to forage for mushrooms. We'll talk about how Sweden's tallest mountain is continuing to melt. We'll discuss Sweden's new budget and how it will affect listeners. And finally, we'll go in depth on a recent deadly escalation of hostilities in Sweden's on going gang crime epidemic. I'm Paul O'Mahony and sitting with me today in Stockholm is the Swedish crime reporter Katrin Krantz and we're joined from Malmö by the locals Emma Lovegren and Richard Orange. Welcome to the podcast Katrin. Thank you. And we're going to be talking to you quite a bit later on about gang violence. But to start with, can you please tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, I've been working as a crime reporter and a news feature reporter for about 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, mainly at Expressen, which is a newspaper that has always been very strong on covering crime. But I have to say that these last few weeks have been exceptional, though, even for us. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and we'll hear much more about that later on. Thanks very much for that, Katrine. And please feel free to jump in on any of the topics we're about to discuss, starting with mushrooms. Richard, you're a frequent forager and our in-house fungus expert, I think we could say. It's been a good year for mushrooms, hasn't it? I'm I'm more an enthusiast than an expert, which with mushrooms is a bit dangerous, actually. Uh, (laughs) But um, they they say it's a good year and it certainly started really early, at least a month earlier than normal. And the Swamp Clap Facebook page, which is huge, it has like 100,000 members. Swamp Clap means, I don't know what it means, mushroom present? I don't know. It's full of people showing off, you know, these huge tables covered in chanterelles and so it's definitely good for most people but i have to say mm-hmm. my own mushroom picking places haven't been very productive i'm not sure why that is so i'm <laughs> on the lookout for new ones and what are your best tips for for anyone who wants to head into the woods and start picking i think the best advice for a beginner is to just learn one or two mushrooms really well and go out only looking for those. Because w- when I started, I'd go out with a basket and just pick pretty much everything and then try and work out what it was, which is yep. completely pointless and also a bit dangerous because you <laughs> might have something where, you know, even a small amount can do you some damage. So, you know, down here in the south of Scorner, you know, the seps or belites, you know, the porcini mushrooms that the Italians mm. eat are quite probably the most common and, and a good one to start with. And Further north in in most of Sweden, maybe just learn chanterelles, which are these kind of yellow mushrooms. Yeah. And, and, and the good thing about those is that they're both quite easy to identify and nothing you can confuse them with is likely to 
to kill you. So, good, so, good so you know, I mean, even if you pick the wrong type that, you know, the false chanterelles, they just taste bad. They, they don't, they don't do you any damage. And another piece of advice is if you possibly can, you should get a friend to show you a good spot because it takes years to find somewhere that's that's decent. It took us years mm. anyway to find anywhere that, to find places that actually produce mushrooms. But it would have to be a very good friend because Swedes famously don't share their mushroom picking spots with anyone, <laughs> even their closest friends. But amazingly, actually, somebody on this Facebook page shared their spot in Northwest School, and I think they were moving house or something. Right. So <laughs> me and a hundred thousand other people will be going <laughs> going to Clipan to try and see what see if they can find any chanterelles. And just generally, if you're looking for a spot. What you want is a kind of, generally you want, I think, older pinal fir trees, ideally mixed with birch, I think. You know, it seems to work best where there's a little bit of a mixture of, of different types of tree and and an older tree. So it kind of doesn't really matter if it's a plantation, but but you don't want the ones that have been planted in the last like 20, 30 years. You need to be sort of 50 years or 60 years or something to, I don't know why that is, but it does seem to be the way. Um, oh, a general good rule is to avoid any white mushroom with white gills and any little brown mushrooms with brown gills. They're the most poisonous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and have you it's, ever? It's a general ever, rule, and, and there are there are white mushrooms with white gills you can eat, and little brown mushrooms with brown gills you can eat. But it's just it's, if you're starting out, it's just not worth the risk. And have you ever poisoned yourself? It sounded like you were taking some risks in the early days. Uh, no, I haven't. Good. I haven't. I haven't. Uh, or maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe I may have eaten. There's there's a there's a mushroom called in English. It's called the yellow stainer, which looks mm -hmm. a bit. English mushrooms have the best names I've saved, but the yellow stainer is kind of it looks a bit like a field mushroom. You know those, you know big white field mushrooms you can get in. But the difference is, is if you cut it, it goes yellow quite quickly. And I think mm -hmm. I ate a few of those ones, but they, but they don't they don't do you much damage. They just make you feel a bit ill. Richard came into the office the other day and was terrified that he had poisoned himself from making a poisonous mushroom soup. I'm yeah, generally, generally, <laughs> I, 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 I'm a. It, but I think that's more because I'm neurotic than that. I pick. I'm dangerous. I'm every time I eat <laughs> mushrooms, every time I make a mushroom soup, I'm always like, oh, was one of those uh, one of those uh, toadstools? Uh, no, maybe I shouldn't have picked that pink brittle gill i don't know yeah but i haven't actually done me done myself in good how about you emma are you a mushroom enthusiast i don't have the same gung-ho attitude to mushrooms as richard does or to anything in life actually but no i just i just <laughs> pick chanterelles because those are the easy ones and i don't even pick those to be fair because i can't find them it's um okay. hard, hard to find the spot how about you, Katrin? You a regular mushroom picker? No, no, I want to be. Uh, I have an intention to every year, <laughs> but I also like I don't have a good spot, and I always end up being where everyone else is. And yeah. uh, so I know, unfortunately, I haven't picked many mushrooms in my life. I had a colleague who came to the office with thirty kilos of uh, chanterelles. Thirty kilos. Yes. Yeah, a bit of envy there, but uh, no. That's crazy. What's the street value of 30 kilos of uh, chanterelles? That's like 10,000 kroner. I was I said I was going to ge it was a geotagga. What was it called in like English? Geotag, yeah. Geotag his car, but uh, yeah. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> do it, do it. Put some sort of tracking device on there. Yeah. Um, no, don't do it. Can't uh, believe the okay. gangs fight over drugs and not chanterelles. <laughs> exactly. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll put a link to uh, Richard's mushroom foraging guide in the episode notes. 
We're going to get out of the woods and into the mountains now, more specifically to Kebnekaise, Sweden's highest mountain, which is located in the Scandinavian mountain range in the far northwest of the country. It was in the news recently because an annual review of its height showed that one of its peaks is continuing to shrink. Emma, can you give us the lowdown on this? Why is part of the mountain melting and how does it affect people who want to climb to the top of Sweden's highest peak? Okay, so Kebnekaise basically has two main peaks. So there's the southern one and the northern one. And the northern one is just rocks. So its height just stays the same. But the southern one is covered by a glacier. So it kind of varies in height depending on how much it snows. So it's um, it actually varies like throughout the year. It's at its highest point in May after the winter and lowest in September after after the summer. But it's also shrinking just in general because of climate change. Because it just doesn't snow as much in winter as it used to and the snow melts faster. In the last 25 years, it's lost about one meter a year. So it's now 2,093.2 meters, which is 1.4 meters lower than this time last year. Interestingly, the southern peak actually used to be the tallest peak. But in 2019, it was overtaken by the northern peak, which is 2,096.8 meters, which is the same as it has been for hundreds of years. And other than this obviously being a pretty worrying sign of climate change, it's also sad for hikers. Because uh, the thing about the southern peak is that anyone can climb it as long as you're like reasonably fit and you make sure that you prepare and stuff like that. But to reach the northern peak, you should really be a pretty seasoned mountain climber and you should bring proper gear and a guide. And like I used to go hiking in Scotland a lot, but I wouldn't be able to climb the northern peak. So I've lost my chance to climb Sweden's tallest mountain. Katrine, have you ever been to Kebnekaise? Oh, no, no. It's a bit like with the mushrooms. Yes, I, I would love to go. I have an intention to, but um, I no, I haven't. I always I end up driving my kids to the mall or something. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, yes, it's very beautiful from what I've seen. So you should go, I guess, before it's too late. Yeah. How about you, Richard? No, I was actually planning to climb it in the summer with a friend from the UK, but the flights were just too pricey for him. So we just abandoned mm. it. But luckily it would have been, it, it's quite luckily actually, because that the week that we were planning on climbing is the same week that everybody at the kind of Vanderhem just before we climbed came down with this terrible vomiting bug. So there were like thousands of climbers just kind of having to go home because they were sick everywhere okay yeah you so, dodged so, the bullet so i dodged the bullet i would have spent all the money and not been able to climb it probably so it's quite good yeah i haven't climbed it either maybe we should have some sort of a like a team building exercise where we go to cabinet kaiser yeah i'm up for that <laughs> nobody jumped on that idea very quickly <laughs> Uh, Okay, thank you for filling us in on Sweden's highest mountain. We're going to link in the notes to a very entertaining and informative article that our former colleague Oliver G wrote about his trip to Kebnekaise and all the mosquitoes he met along the way. Well worth a read if you have the time. We published a survey a few days ago about podcasts that many of you have already responded to. If you haven't, we'd be delighted if you could take a moment to answer the questions. It takes very little time, but it's helping us a lot as we plan for the months ahead. And a big thank you to everyone who has answered the open-ended question at the end of the survey. You said so many nice things that have given us enough energy and inspiration to take us all the way through the autumn and winter. And we will add a link to the survey in the notes, so please check it out if you can. 
Okay, the budget now. So the Swedish government presented its new budget this week and there were lots of nuggets in there that will affect listeners in various ways. Let's have a look now at some of the key points. First of all, Richard, what would you say are the elements of the budget that have generated the most debate? I'd say two things. One is the decision to pause this automatic raising of the threshold for paying state income tax, which sounds very technical, but Mm. is actually bringing in the biggest chunk of new money into the budget. It's going to bring them 12 billion krona extra to spend. So it's it's actually the, the biggest single new number in the budget. And the second is the impact on emissions on Sweden's plans to reduce emissions of tax cuts to petrol and diesel, but also changes to this um, biofuels obligation. And both of those things, the tax cuts to diesel and the pausing of the raising of the threshold for state income tax were announced two weeks ago. So they're not exactly new, but they're Mm. still the bits that have generated by far the most debate in the papers. Just to quickly go through them, the the first one, the the lowest salary that you can have without having to pay state income tax, because in Sweden, most of your tax goes to the municipalities and the regions, and you only start paying state income tax when you have a certain amount, and that the salary would have gone from 51,000 kroner a month to 57 kroner a month, and it will now stay at 51,000 kroner, so it won't be adjusted up to inflation. And this came as a huge shock to moderate supporters, and particularly to Timbro, which is Sweden's right-wing think tank, because it's something the Social Democrats have been calling for, because they were sort of presenting it as an automatic, as a tax cut for the well-off. And the government obviously decided they didn't want to be seen bringing in a massive tax cut for the well-off and actually would quite like to have that 12 billion kroner as well. And so they didn't do it. So what you've had is you've had Timbro saying, you know, no, it doesn't matter who you vote for, you still get a social democrat finance minister, mm. which is quite a harsh thing to say. And also, I've seen a lot of political commentators like Thomas Rambury, who's writing in Dagens Nyheter, saying that this failure to sort of cut tax for most people could cost the moderates the next election because mm. he says, you know, government can't survive if it doesn't improve the situation for its core voters. And if yeah. you compare to people remember Anders Borey and the the finance minister under the Alliance government who cut taxes all over the place and reduced the tax burden for the rich, but also ordinary people quite significantly. And this government, partly because it has to spend so much on defence and partly because it wants to keep inflation under control, isn't doing that. It's a, it's And people who want tax cuts, like the right wing, Economic liberals are upset about that. And there's been a lot of debate about that in the papers. And the other thing on the environment, the reason that that caused a furore was not exactly so much the cut on the tax on petrol and diesel, which were 75 euro for petrol and 43 euro a litre for diesel. It's more the impact that it is having on the government's green goals and Sweden's emissions. And that is the angle that the international press focused on. So the Guardian newspaper wrote about how Sweden was increasing its emissions and the AFP Newswire did. And even Expressen, the newspaper, your your newspaper, (laughs) Catherine, which which is generally to the right, it was kind of the main point in their leader. They said, you know, the environment is, they call it den store plumpen in the budget, <laughs> which I think means kind of like a big, ugly ink stain. I'm not sure. What does it mean, Swedes? Help yeah, me. I think that's kind of what it means. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I even saw actually the former moderate mayor of Stockholm, uh, she criticised the impact on emissions in a post on LinkedIn. So it's like some of, like this debate is not just kind of being pushed by the left. 
And I think, you know, a lot of kind of, a lot of people don't like the idea of Sweden rolling back its environmental yes. ambitions. Well, Sweden basically abandoning the kind of leadership on green issues. And the reason that that got, I think, so much attention is, is just the nature of budgets. But in the budget statement, they have to account for the effect that all of the policies will have on emissions, which means that, you know, there's a table that basically just says emissions are going to increase by between 5.9 and 10 billion tonnes up to 2030, which is colossal. And as a result, it says Sweden will miss pretty much all of its national and international climate goals. Mm. And just the fact that, that that is there in black and white in the budget document has, has, I think, created a lot of debate and people have been tweeting out, you know, some of yeah. the more hair-raising figures. And so I'd say, yeah, I'd say those are the two big ones. And the other, the other thing that's got a bit of comment is that they've increased, they've provided 10 billion in extra funding to municipalities and the regions, which municipalities have been screaming for because inflation has pushed up their costs so much and they're having to cut back on schools yeah. and healthcare. It's the biggest new spending element in the whole budget. It dwarfs, you know, it's more than 10 times the amount of extra going on defence, which at the time of war in Ukraine, you think is, is pretty significant. But as you'd expect, the municipalities and regions and the Social Democrats and the left party are all saying it's not nearly enough. Yeah. But So I'd say those are the, the big headlines. Okay. And aside from those, Emma, what parts of the budget are going to have the biggest impact on most people's everyday lives, would you say? Well, I mean, Richard briefly mentioned the um, working tax credit, that um, the the pausing of the threshold for raising the state tax is supposed to kind of fund. Uh, so this working tax credit, it's not entirely clear yet exactly how it's going to be used, but it's mainly going to benefit those earning around uh, 38,000 kronor a month or less. Mm -hmm. And the example that was used when they presented it was that a family consisting of a police officer and a nurse would pay 14,000 kroner less in tax. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess if another thing that you might impact your life is if you happen to use tobacco, uh, you may be interested in knowing that they're lowering the tax on snus which is Sweden's mm -hmm. famous moist tobacco that you stick under your upper lip. Yeah. And they're raising the tax on cigarettes. Because I think they, they say that snooze is generally better for your health than cigarettes. Mm. Although I guess even better would be to not consume any tobacco at all. But there you go. And those are some of the things that you might immediately notice. But there are other things that will have an kind of indirect effect. Like, for example, something that might affect a lot of listeners is that they're investing 140 million kronor in boosting the quality of Swedish for immigrants teaching, yeah. though it's not entirely clear how. And actually, 140 million doesn't sound like that much to me in context, no. but I'm not sure how it's going to work yet. They also want to completely scrap funding for ethnic organizations in order to improve integration, which is interesting because I remember we actually had a researcher on the podcast a while ago who said that actually groups that are based around ethnicity or nationality or things like that, they are actually good for integration because they, they provide a kind of pathway into Swedish society. Exactly. That's right. That was Andrea Voyer from um, Stockholm University, who we had on at the end of August last year. If anyone wants to go back and listen to that episode, she had a lot of really interesting things to say in general about segregation. Okay. Thanks very much for those updates on the budget. Um, we link to an article in the show notes on how it's likely to affect us all. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, let's talk about gang crime now. Not for the first time on this podcast, unfortunately, and certainly not the last. So Sweden's gang conflict has kicked off again in an extremely violent way in recent weeks with a spate of attacks and deadly shootings concentrated mostly in the Stockholm and Uppsala areas. Katrin, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you've been covering crime in Sweden for the best part of two decades as a reporter for the Express and newspaper. Can you put the gang crime situation in some sort of perspective for us? How bad is it compared to what's come before? It is very bad and very violent. Mm. And uh, compared to what we've seen before, we see innocent people like uh, relatives that are directly targeted. And we also see people who get shot and killed by mistake. Mm. We see a lot of very young, (laughs) stressed out people committing these crimes. And the violence we see is very aggressive. Yeah. And a lot of the violence in recent weeks has taken place in Uppsala, which is where the suspected leader of the so-called Foxtrot gang, Rawa Majid, grew up. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Who is Rawa Majid, who's often referred to in the Swedish media as the Kurdish fox? And why are there so many attacks in his hometown now, despite the fact that he's believed to be living in Turkey? Yeah, so it's a proxy war that we see right now. Mm. The leadership in the Foxtrot gang, uh, Rawa Majid, and his former ally, Ismail Abdo, are both detained uh, by Swedish prosecutors many times over for serious crimes, but they have moved to Turkey. Mm. And something has made them turn against each other. And we know that there have been several attempted attacks in Turkey, but everything just seems to have imploded there. And when Ismail Abdo's mother was murdered, in Uppsala, it turned into this spiral of violence that is now playing out. And in, in, we see in cities such as Uppsala, but also Norrköping and Stockholm. It's just everywhere where people who are connected to these people live. And Rawa Majid, he is a large-scale drug uh, trafficker. And he's suspected of smuggling and distributing countless kilos of drugs all over Sweden. Mm. So just to clarify that Ismail Abdo's mother... She was one of the victims in these recent shootings, right? Just in the, yes, in the last she was. Weeks. And I would say that that maybe was the start of this very, very violent period that we have seen. But it was the conflict had been brewing sort of in in Turkey uh, between these uh, these people, and then there was this killing, and she was she had absolutely nothing to do with anything except mm. being a, a relative and a mother to Ismail Abdo. So that's happening a lot more now, is it, that relatives of these gang leaders are being drawn into the conflict? Yes, we've seen several cases of this. And this is also an effect of this proxy war that we see. They just get um, at anyone who is connected and maybe yeah. not not close. Yeah. 
So I read something in the newspaper this morning, just before we came in to report that Majid is sort of fighting a war on three fronts at the moment. So he has this internal conflict with Ismail Abdo that, that you've just talked about, but also two of the other networks, the Dalan network, which is based in the south of Stockholm and the Bandidos, the old sort of motorcycle gang. Is that a fair reflection, do you think? Yes, it is. The, the conflict with Dalan is... Um and that that was behind the first that we call the first wave of violence that we saw maybe from January and until the summer. Yeah. And uh, we also saw some attacks on the bandidos that that we think are connected. So yes, I would say that that's a fair description. Yeah. And it's interesting that we're talking about Rawa Majid and using his real name. Like Swedish media are generally reluctant to publish the names of suspected criminals until very late in the legal process. But Expressen's deputy editor, Corin Olson, wrote an article this week explaining why your newspaper took an early decision to publish his name. Can you talk us through the rationale behind that decision? Yes, it has to do with the nature of organised crime today. I mean, how it operates and how to explain what is going on to our readers and listeners. These people are drug lords, drug barons, if you will. They operate on a large scale and what they do has a serious impact on our society. Uh, They have a lot of informal power and also a lot of inherent violence. And I would say traditionally, many media outlets, they would follow the judicial process and they would wait for a conviction of so and so many years before naming a criminal. But the the gangs operate internationally and the leadership is in the background. So if we wait for them to get captured and convicted, we could wait forever. And it would be very hard for our audience to know what is happening. Mm. So we feel that we have to call these people out. And we also have to focus, of course, on the victims of, yeah. of, of gang violence, which is something we do a lot uh, also. Can I just say that this is, this is always a big issue for me when, I, when I've been working for British newspapers, because especially when, when the crimes become so international that when you've got, you know, there was this, this person murdered in Battersea and a big trial in Battersea of gangsters who are based in Sweden, and when they mm. feature a lot, I mean, the English media is naming all of them because they're on trial. I mean, do you then not name them in your report from Sweden or should you? I mean, they're all over the, their names are all over the international press. Can Sweden still not name them when all it takes is a Google search for someone to find it in, a, in, a, in, a, in an article written from Turkey or England? I mean, I think it's like it's because crimes become so international that it's that naming conventions harder to stick to. But every newspaper makes their own kind of decision. I mean, it happens mm-hmm. even within Sweden that some newspapers will name a suspected criminal or or a convicted yeah, yeah. criminal, and some newspapers don't. No, absolutely, no, it's true. You referred to Majid as a as a drug lord, and so much of the conflict centers around drugs. How how big is the drug trade in Sweden? How important is it to understanding this conflict? I would say that uh, drug trafficking is at the core of all of this, and it's extremely lucrative yeah. business, and uh, it has increasingly become so. And it's also, I would say, you find drugs at every corner of this city. And every city in Sweden, and uh, it's just a very, very uh, huge business. And it's to, to be on top of it and to control it is, is very, very lucrative. And how much has Sweden be- become a, a hub in the European drug trade? I mean, there were there were a lot of reports earlier in the year about how a lot of cocaine was being smuggled on banana boats from Ecuador to Helsingborg in Skåne primarily. So how important is 
somewhere like Helsingborg as a, a hub in the European drug trade now? It is um, very important. They have made, like you said, some very large um, seizures. and uh, But you also see, I mean, you see drugs coming in from everywhere. It, they come to Göteborg, which is yeah. also a big harbor. They come through the bridge, of course, from Denmark. So it's yeah. just flood, it's flooding in from so many ways. And, and um, it's just ongoing. And I think the uh, customs have also made it some large um, seizures. But still, it, it's just uh, an ongoing... Um, it, just comes in new loads every day mm. so yeah it's hard to track everything why is there such a big market for drugs in sweden well um that's a good question actually um it's just um just people use a lot of drugs i mean you can just it's easy to buy you don't have to the way it works now you don't really have to get in contact with uh anyone who's shady or sketchy i mean it's just you can you can buy it online you it's just very easy to get access to drugs is very easy. I mean, and and obviously it's a the market for it is very big. So last week, a thirteen-year-old boy was found murdered in a wooded area in Honinge, south of Stockholm, in a suspected gang shooting. Are you seeing, Katrine, in your reporting that the age profile of gang members has changed and become younger in recent times? Absolutely. Uh, this is a trend that we have seen for a while, but now it is more than common with. Uh, 13, 14, 15-year-old criminals yeah. and victims, of course. And uh, we call them child soldiers. And it's not really correct, of course, but we can see that children are being used in a very cynical way by gangs, such as the Foxtrot yeah. and other gangs too. And I think you have to understand, first of all, to use children to commit serious crimes is rational in a way, because even if they lack you know, skill and, yeah. and things can go wrong, as they often do, if they get caught and they're under 15, they will get sent to juvenile institution. Yeah. So you can actually shoot someone in the head and you can be out on the street in a couple of years. And the instigators, they're often really hard to pin down. Mm. So they don't really risk that much. And some kids are being coerced. But because of this whole gang culture and the allure surrounding it, yeah. many also line up to get in. And... Uh, most gangs, they have rappers connected to them that they work as an ambassadors in a way. Mm. And once in the gang, you might find that you're in over your head, but it's really hard to back down. And we do see that these children are they're just completely expendable. Yeah. They are, uh, you know, cannon fodder, what yeah. it was called. Yeah. And in fact, there is a completely new crime that is supposed to combat this. And um, as of July this year, it's called involving a minor in criminal activity. This crime uh, involves everything from, you know, asking someone to be on the lookout to, to giving someone money or instructions to do something. And the maximum penalty is four years. Right. Um, I, I don't think we've seen that, but there are a few sentences already. And uh, we will certainly see more of this. Mm, yeah. mm, interesting. Richard, Emma, can I bring you back in now? So if we look at Swedish politics, the right-wing government won the election last year on a promise to get tough on crime and push back against the gangsters. Is it too early to judge them on this, Richard? I'd say yes and no. I mean, to an extent, if you're someone who you know, doesn't believe that tough and crime works. You could judge them as soon as they started offering, you know, these populist solutions, which 
you know, most of the researchers on on crime reduction would tell them won't work, you know, like stop mm. and search zones and stuff like that. But Ulf Christensen, the prime minister, he did repeatedly say in the election campaign that it would take a long time to solve Sweden's problems with gang violence. So it's unlike a lot of the promises they made in the election. You know, this one, they were quite careful just to say, we're not going to solve this straight away. And mm. um, and he said, you know, it will take more than one term in, in government even. And also, yeah. you know, very few of the new laws that they're trying to enact that have come into force yet. And a lot of their response to gang crime is legal. It's about tightening the law. So um, I think we should wait until the laws come into effect before we can say yeah. that they have or haven't worked. I mean, one thing I can say, this is just an additional thing, is I, I don't feel, I was just thinking about the answer to this question. I haven't seen Gunnar Strömer, the justice minister, or Ulf Christensen, the prime minister, kind of out on the streets, meeting policemen, going to the suburbs, talking to parents of people affected, meeting police officers, or doing anything like that. I, I, I think just thinking about it now, I think they're a bit distant. I mean, mm. Stromer is very concerned with laws and framing laws. And, you know, he's, he's, he's a top lawyer. And I don't feel that he's kind of on the ground with his sleeves rolled up, you know, making us at least giving a signal that I'm getting to grips with this. And the same goes for Ulf Christensen. He seems quite distant. He prefers international diplomacy and stuff like that. So I don't think there's a figure in the government who is kind of out there working with police, kind of giving the signal that we're doing something about this. But I might be wrong. I mean, mm, it feels yeah, that way to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't thought about it. But when you say it, I saw Christerson, he was um, out in Farsta yeah. when uh, this um, innocent uh, man was from Eritrea was shot. Then I saw him there. But uh, other than that, no, no, they're not no. really digging into this in, on a street <laughs> level, I think. No. What do you think, Emma? Christensen now says that it will take a long time to solve, but he, he definitely wasn't shy to criticise the previous government when, when shooting rates started going up. But, I mean, Richard mentioned this sort of tough-on-crime posturing, but it's kind of tricky also because these things are happening now, so they need to be cracked down on now. Like a lot of these sort of hardened criminals running these things, like they they don't need a hug, they need to be locked up for a very long time, you know. But... At the same time, like preventive measures, that's what's going to determine what the situation is like 20 years from now. Like investing in schools and social services and the kind of soft police measures, like how police officers go out and interact with people on the street and stuff like that. But I mean, 20 years is, that's five election cycles. So it's it's not going to win you the next election. Like mm. you might get credit for something 20 years from now, but it's not going to help you as a politician right now. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Katrine, before we finish up, can I just ask you how you think the gang violence situation is likely to develop in the months ahead? Like I said, it's a bit of a capture or kill situation that we see right now. Like either the authorities, in this case, that would be Swedish and Turkish, mm. uh, decide to act together and, and, and crack down on the Foxtrot organization or the two fractions of the Foxtrot gang will continue to fight each other until Rawa Majid or Ismail Abdo are dead. Yeah. Uh, or at least someone in the leadership. Because, you know, to kill someone's mother, it's a declaration of war and it has to be retaliated. And I think that society is mobilizing. But I, I don't think we can see the end of this violence just yet.
that's it for this week. Uh, thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Our panellists this week were the locals Emma Lovegrain and Richard Orange and Expressens crime reporter Catherine Krantz. Our sound engineer is Reese Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again next week with another episode of Sweden in Focus. Until then, take care. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.